Good morning. I'm reading this morning from the first letter that we have that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, um, chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. We are spending a few months working our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And if you've been following along with us, if you want to catch up, the recordings are all on our website. Uh, but if, if, if you've been following along with us, you, you know that the first opening chapters of Paul's letter uh, refer to conflicts and divisions that, that had risen up in the Corinthian church. Now it becomes plain, for those five verses that Judy just read, now it becomes plain that the primary conflict isn't even between the Corinthians and themselves. The primary conflict is between the Corinthian church and Paul. And as you keep reading the letter, you're going to find issue after issue, they are against him all the way. Therefore, Apollos, therefore, Peter, uh, therefore, apostles and high-profile preachers and teachers, and they, they made divisions and factions, judging one another based on who respected and followed who. And Paul's been trying to say to them in the first three chapters, that is not the point of Christianity. Uh, and actually, now you see uh, he's addressing directly challenges that they were posing to his own integrity as a leader his viability as an apostle, and his character. So they're attacking Paul's authority and credibility, but it's very interesting to see the way he responded to them. Uh, to persevere in certain roles in life or in certain lines of work or vocation, uh, at least in ministry, I could say this, and some of you, especially if you're dealing with the public or you're, you're dealing with people who have expectations of what your role should look like and how you should perform it, uh, you, in order to persevere in that role, you know that you have to figure out how to handle people's opinions. You won't survive if you don't know what to do with people's opinions of you of the work that you do. And I reached a watershed moment many years ago in my own ministry where I was so fed up that I almost gave up. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to be in ministry. I was interested in doing anything, like flipping pancakes somewhere. Until a friend of mine, a wise man, said to me, you are appraising your own worth by the opinions of people. And that's when things began to change for me. I'm not saying that opinions aren't important. I'm not saying that advice doesn't matter. It matters very much. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 15, without counsel, plans fail. With many advisors, they succeed. What I'm saying is, 
And what Paul was writing to the Corinthians was that placing your worth in people's opinions is very dangerous. And it's needless because God alone can judge and God alone can justify. And that's, that, is the, that is the golden grain of truth that we find in this short passage written 2,000 years ago. The court of public opinion is highly influential. Ask any politician. Actually, Abraham Lincoln believed that when it came to politics and culture, uh, the view and mood of an entire society, public opinion was everything, and he was a master of it. But the court of public opinion uh, can be brutal. Now, I'm pretty sure that nobody in the room runs a nation uh, or even runs a state or a district or a city. Uh, But many people in the room do oversee groups or organizations. Uh, Some of us oversee this church. Some of you oversee your household. Some of you oversee a classroom. Some of you oversee a division at work. Uh, some of you are in the service industry, so, so if you work in restaurants or in hotels or if you're an entrepreneur or a small business owner, you're, you're always with and dealing with the public, what you know is this, that people are constantly offering you input, their own assessments, their own appraisals of your work or your product or your methods or your results, right? And what you know is that people appoint themselves, especially when you don't match up to their expectations, when you don't match up to their unwritten codes and their own personal laws, uh, you, you discover uh, that they appoint themselves as prosecutors and judges and juries, self-appointed prosecutors, judges, and juries to, to offer you sent a sentence, Uh, to offer you an appraisal on your work, maybe even on your character. I think everybody in the room knows what it feels like to feel examined and tried and pronounced guilty in the court of opinion. And this, this mentality was rampant in the ancient city of Corinth, where competitive individualism, building yourself up from the ground, making something of your life, being better and stronger and more intelligent and more accomplished and, and wealthier than your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Corinth was a community of people whose grandparents and great-grandparents were slaves, were immigrants, and so like Americans, the Corinthians were all about upward social mobility. Competitive individualism uh, was, was the flavor of that city. And, in that, and, and so that mentality had crept, had crept into the church there. And that's what Paul is speaking against in 1 Corinthians. And so he sums up the first three chapters by saying, So let no one boast in men, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter. Let no one boast in leaders and personalities. Now, he gives them an alternative. He wants them to think of himself and other leaders who administered to them and other leaders in the church worldwide differently. Not like their culture was thinking, but thinking with a new, a new mind, a Christ-centered, grace-filled mind. And so he opens up in this chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Now, you know from other Paul's writings, uh, from Paul's other letters, that the mysteries of God refers to the gospel of grace. When Paul talks about the mysteries of God, he means the gospel, the news that was finally revealed that Jesus, God's son, came to save sinners who live for him by faith, whether Jew or Gentile. That is the mystery of God finally revealed in Jesus Christ and promoted by Christ's apostles, one of them being Paul himself. And what he's saying to them is, the mysteries of God have been entrusted to me and to these other teachers who have blessed you and helped you in your faith, who have taught you and discipled you. So Paul's saying, Peter, Apollos, the others, myself, we are stewards of a message that was entrusted to us. It is not our message. It is not our word. It is not our own idea. It is the Lord's message, and he entrusted it to us. Therefore, we're accountable to the one who entrusted the message to us. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, think of me as Christ's servant, not your servant. Think of me as imparting Christ's wisdom to you, not my own wisdom. And that allows Paul to go on in verse 3 to say, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul gave very little weight to their appraisal of his performance. He's not saying, hey, I'm an apostle and I don't need to take your advice. I'm an apostle, and I don't need to listen to anybody. I don't need to listen to other points of view, and I will never apologize. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this, my boss never asked you to give me a performance appraisal. What if you and I had the kind of freedom to believe that about ourselves and the work that we do? What if we had, regardless of your calling or your gifts or whatever role you are in right now in life, what if we had the freedom to not worry about public opinion, to not worry about the opinions of others, to not be intimidated by that grand court? But before we answer that question, there's another court whose rulings hold tremendous sway over each of us. It is more strict, it is, more, it is less forgiving than the court of public opinion. It is the court of self-assessment. People are plagued, especially in America, are plagued with an insatiable appetite for self-help. Just Google self-help. Go to Amazon and, and just type in self-help and see how many books come up. We're plagued with an insatiable appetite for self-appraisal, for self-expression. And now in my my line of work, ministry people do this all the time. They ask each other, what's your Myers-Briggs type? What are are you? What's your your Enneagram type? Oh, that's a big one lately. That's ancient personality uh, test, but there's been a a resurgence in popularity now. What's your Myers-Briggs? What's your Enneagram? What's your DISC profile? And we say to each other, oh, I'm an ENFJ. I'm a C3PO. I'm a high I. I'm a a three-wing four. Oh, really? Okay. Now, look, I, I don't mean to degrade any of that. I think those tools are very, very helpful. 
But, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, when you go online and take the Hogwarts sorting test and discover that they don't place you in the house you want to be, right? You say, I- I'm not a Slytherin. I know I'm a Hufflepuff. You're incensed when people don't portray you as you see yourself. Self-reflection, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Self-reflection is critical and healthy. But we're self-obsessed. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people or we're constantly comparing ourselves to the image that we want ourselves to appear as. There is a multi-billion dollar company that for free allows you to portray an image of yourself, maybe even an image of your face, that you want other people to believe. Whether it's true or not, And we're elated and we're prideful when we compare well against everybody else. When our business, when our church, when our endeavors and our circle of friends compare well compared to others. But we're crushed and we're ashamed when we fall short. But Paul makes another amazing statement. He says in verse 3, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul gave as little weight to his own opinion of himself as to others' opinions of him. Now, Paul is not a guy who suffered from self-hate. Paul was not a guy who suffered with low self-esteem, as we like to say today. One commentator puts it this way, Paul would regard such detailed self-assessment as fruitless navel-gazing. He goes on to say in verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. I'm not aware that I've done anything to deserve your terrible opinion of me. My conscience is clear, Paul is saying. But he does the amazing thing of saying, but just because I have a clear conscience doesn't mean I haven't done anything wrong. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Even when his conscience was clear, he realized that wasn't enough to justify him. The same commentator went on to write, even if one's own conscience is totally clean, that proves nothing for our human capacity for rationalization and self-deception is boundless. And so Paul, knowing that, goes on to say in verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. God alone has the right of appraisal. So you and I have no need to judge each other. You have no need to judge the people you live with or work with or do life with. You have no need to judge the people who have different opinions than you socially or politically. There's no need to judge one another. Even more so, there's no need to judge yourself. And when you begin to realize that, it liberates you. It replaces your self-hate with joy. And gratitude. It replaces your envy and jealousy with contentment. It replaces our pride with humility, all along restoring the broken images that you have drawn of yourself, all along canceling the unjust, guilty verdicts that you've pronounced on other people in your heart. 
We have no right to judge other people. And we have no right to judge ourselves. When I mean judge, I mean condemnation. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's not ignoring your need to examine yourself. Read chapter 11. He talks about examining yourself. Paul's not ignoring your need for accountability, to be held accountable by other people who you can trust, who love you, who are wise. Paul's not ignoring the need for self-discipline and community-based discipline. And the rest of this letter is proof. Just go to chapter 5 and chapter 6. Actually, Paul tells Christians in another place to examine everything, to test all things. But here's Paul's point now. Don't declare a verdict that you're unable and ill-equipped to judge. God told the prophet Samuel when Samuel was looking at all most of Jesse's sons and saying, where is Israel's next king going to come from? And God said to Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Paul summarizes in verse 5 by saying, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Paul's always bringing everything back to Jesus returning. So what we do now, what we think now matters because God's come, Jesus is coming back. Don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then... Each one will receive his commendation from God or his praise from God. Paul is saying, you need to test all things. You need to examine all things, but do not pronounce verdicts on one another before God returns to reveal what is ultimately in people's hearts. Rather, give the greatest weight to your Creator's appraisal of you. Your Creator gave you life. Your Creator gave you a body. Your Creator gave you a mind and entrusted you with abilities and gifts and people and resources for a purpose. And He's returning to appraise you as a steward of all that He's entrusted to you. And so Paul likewise says, back in verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We should each be asking ourselves the question, am I faithful with all that the Creator has entrusted to me? And the court, the courtroom of a righteous God, here's another courtroom, in light of stewardship, the court, the court of a righteous, holy God should terrify us. The one who knows our hearts. The one who has a rolling videotape of every thought, of every action, of every word we've ever conceived. The court of the righteous God should frighten us. But the court of a righteous God is the only place where we can get a good verdict. Our brother Bob mentioned the word hope before. Hope only exists in the courtroom of a holy God. 
Paul's confidence, Paul's peace, Paul's freedom from the opinions of others, and, and, and his lack of preoccupation over an opinion of himself, that freedom, that liberty, it comes from, the, from what he says in verse 4. I'll repeat it again. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, why wasn't Paul terrified by the judgment of God upon a sinner like himself? Why am I not terrified by the judgment of God upon a sinner like me? God came in the form of a human being. And when Jesus stood in the Jordan River with John the Baptist, his cousin, the Gospels tell us that a voice came out of, it seemed like, out of heaven. And all who were there heard it. And the voice said, speaking of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is the only perfect appraisal and performance assessment ever given by God the Father to humanity since we fell from grace. This is my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus continued to live a perfect life, not even by our standards, by God's standards, lived a perfect life and deserved glory and honor and dominion and authority over all things. And yet, he died the death that a criminal deserved. The apostle Peter put it this way, Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Tim Keller writes in his very helpful book on this very passage, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He writes, Jesus went into the courtroom. And Jesus sat in your seat. He sat in the defendant's seat where you belong, and he pled guilty on your behalf. And Tim Keller writes, the reason Paul has freedom and the reason Paul's not worried about what people think of him, and he's not even so worried about what he thinks of himself, is because he realized that he's not in the courtroom anymore. Jesus went in for him. Jesus pled guilty for him and received the unjust sentence of guilty. And when he went to the cross and was hung on the cross, he fulfilled our guilty sentence for us. And that is the verdict of grace. The verdict of grace is realizing that Christ pled guilty in your place and fulfilled your sentence as a criminal instead of you. And the verdict of grace, when it has an impact on you, you begin to realize that when God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, he is now talking about you. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. So get out of the courtroom. Enough already. Get out of the courtroom. You are not on trial anymore. But live as though somebody who's been declared innocent. See, that's the thing. Because of the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, God has pronounced you innocent, not guilty. 
now live as somebody who has been declared innocent. Get out of the courtroom. You're not the judge. Wait for God to reveal the hidden things in people's heart and stop judging each other. Freedom, the kind of freedom that Paul displays that will allow you to withstand the criticisms of others and the lethal, the lethal, insidious criticisms that you throw at yourself. That freedom comes from realizing that God alone is the judge who also justifies anyone who trusts in the work of his son when Jesus went into that courtroom. You're free. Live as free people who have been declared innocent by the blood of Jesus. Find freedom in him to stop judging each other and to stop judging yourself. Let's pray. Father, we, we don't hear things like this. We, we don't hear people who have influenced history and society as Paul influenced history and society, say things like, I don't even judge myself. And even when I have a clear conscience, that does not in and of itself acquit me. We don't hear people talking like that who are as influential as Paul was. It must be your grace, Father. It must be your grace alone that convinced him that your appraisal of him was the only one that mattered and that he was under the gaze of your grace and your love, his beloved son, with whom you were well pleased. And Father, I ask for me and for my friends here, everybody in the room, that you would give us faith to see Jesus as standing in that courtroom for us, pleading our guilt, serving our sentence, so that we would never have to be called guilty again. Father, may we have your freedom to no longer judge ourselves, to no longer judge one another, to examine everything but never apply a verdict until you come again to set things straight, to reveal whatever's hidden, and to make things right. Help us to live in your grace as reconciled, redeemed, acquitted sons and daughters of God. Amen.